I think that you always feel behind. And I think it's important to say that because social media will show people being so productive and what they're getting done. But like, there's this welcomed pressure that comes with entrepreneurship that you always feel like you have something to do because it's not a nine to five. It's not like you clock out and the company keeps running. You need to be okay with always feeling like you could do more. Welcome to Enoughness. My name is Lisa Wang, national champion and Hall of Fame gymnast turned serial entrepreneur. This is a show that dives into the deeply personal stories of top business leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and athletes who share the defining inflection points that help them embrace their life's purpose and answer the question, how much is good enough? Today on the show, we have Logan Cohen, who is the co-founder and CEO of Kudzu, the app that rewards students based on their academic achievements. Kudzu serves as a resource for schools to increase student engagement and connect brands with Gen Z through a collaborative educational lens. Her leadership responsibilities include guiding the vision, strategy, and ensuring the execution of value-creating milestones for Kudzu. Logan was named to Forbes 30 Under 30 in education for the class of 2016, Magic Johnson's 32 Under 32, and CIO's top 20 female entrepreneurs to watch in 2017. Logan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'd love for you to tell us about what it is that you dreamed of being when you were a little girl. And did you always know that you were going to be an entrepreneur? Oh, well, I had no idea I was going to be an entrepreneur. Uh, I've been told that I have that type A personality, and I agree, but I thought it would come with that solid paycheck, knowing when it was going to be. So when I was a little girl, I dreamed of being a lawyer. Hmm, and that's interesting. Yeah, I, it feels like another life. So my parents were really supportive and actually sent me to a mock law school in high school. And it was only two weeks at the University of Maryland, but I was like, I'm not going to be a lawyer. <laughs> and that was that. I just imagine like a little little Logan um, being super aggressive in the courtroom. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was funny because I always had an answer for things. So I think my parents were trying to justify like my talking back or reasoning with, oh, you know what? She's going to be such a great lawyer. So that kind of stuck with me like, oh, I should be a lawyer. (laughs) Yeah. Tell me about your upbringing and your parents. I was so fortunate. I am so fortunate. My parents are incredible. And I always say that I learned entrepreneurship through osmosis Mm -hmm. because my mom is an audiologist. So she tests people's hearing. Uh, She worked for someone else for almost like 25 years. And when finally she... I remember the day she came home and enough was enough when apparently her boss told her that she wasn't good for anything but uh, selling. Mm. So she's like, I've learned so much. I have a master's. And my dad said, start your own practice. And I thought he was joking, like, okay, well, you're complaining, so start it. But he was actually being serious. And he was the CFO uh, for a number of radio stations. He's a CPA as well. Uh, So they started the company, Brooklands Audiology. And that's, I was old enough to understand, but not yet to grasp it. Uh, And they always supported me as well as my older brother um, on anything we wanted to do. That's amazing. And from the point of being a lawyer to your next step, tell us about what what came next. Sticking with the really exciting dreams, like being a lawyer <laughs> in college, I was a finance major yeah. uh, and I was actually going to get my master's in accounting. And that's the summer when I was studying for my GMAT is when I met my co-founder. And tell me about Kudzu and the formation of Kudzu. 
Yeah, so Kudzu started based on an idea. It was rewarding students for good grades. That was like at the most simplistic form. And I was struck by that idea from my co-founder, Trevor Wilkins. He grew up in Chicago South Side. He wound up studying sociology at Princeton. And he said that he had this kind of guilt factor of why am I here while the kids I grew up with who are just as smart went down different paths. And he chalked it up to instant gratification and rewards like at home, as well as just really solid foundational um structure with parents and siblings and all that fun stuff. So I just said, well, rewards for grades, why should kids get paid for it? And he's like, well, the kids who are smarter than me are dead or in jail and I'm at Princeton. Mm. So why is this happening? So the sociology major met the finance major. I wrote out the business model and then traction started happening and people started calling us entrepreneurs. So it kind of stuck. One of the things that you said in our earlier conversation was that a lot of times when people ask you, tell us about Logan, you immediately start talking about Kudzu. So I know as entrepreneurs, sometimes we forget who we are and just think of ourselves as our companies. Um, Tell me about how you... um, Start, I guess how you started blending that feeling of being an entrepreneur and, and did you ever lose yourself in the company? Oh, most definitely. I think that there's this overall like false badge of honor that's spewed, whether it's through motivational memes or just other entrepreneurship, like, I don't know, just sexy posts about being busy all the time and fully immersing yourself in the product, which is great, but in doses, not 24 seven. So yeah, I was joking when people would say, Oh, so tell me about yourself. I'd say, could this is a free mobile app that rewards it. And then how interesting am I as a person and what value add am I bringing someone if I'm just constantly pitching or only thinking about could So I actually saw progress after as a person, I matured and could like compartmentalize because I was so good at doing it with my business, whether it was for the students or the educators or the businesses. But when I started compartmentalizing, this is who Logan is. And these are the strengths that Logan brings. I still feel like a jerk talking about myself in third person, (laughs) but uh, it was really important. And the company started progressing through it. Where do you think that that comes from where it's I've seen for um, whether it's women or men, but especially for women, this feeling of I can't promote myself, I can't really brag about myself. And so it's like, let me just talk about something else. And maybe that's my company. Um, did that ever happen to you? And um, yeah, where do you think that came from? It, it happened to me a lot, especially in the beginning. And I think it was because I went into this with such rose colored glasses and I'll attribute it back to my upbringing. I grew up with an older brother and especially my father, he just didn't treat us differently. It wasn't like, oh, I'm so glad Ross did well in this business class and Logan is a great musician or whatever. Like you want to like generalize it. It was just like Logan's going to be a lawyer and Ross can be in literature. Whatever they want to do, they can do. And that really, I think, empowered me and my self-esteem. But then reality hit quick when there was my first like pitch meeting. I remember my pitch probably was horrible. I wouldn't want to hear it. But someone interjected and it was like a middle-aged guy with a check, of course. And he goes, you know, you should wear glasses. People will take you more serious. Mm. What what does that mean? You know? And then he's like, oh, it's just like hard to concentrate. And then like you remind me of someone who like wouldn't run a business. And then like you're talking and just like wear glasses. People will think you're a lot smarter. And I just thought that that was strange. But then there was this snowball effect of I was really fortunate to get these meetings. But then the conversation just kept going left, especially with the power dynamic of me asking for money. It had to be 
I'm giving you an opportunity. <laughs> like, I want you to invest because of this fiscal gain. I don't need the money that bad for what you're talking about. So I think that I started deflecting for it to be about the business almost as a defense mechanism to, oh no, don't ask me what I do for fun. Don't ask me why I'm not wearing a wedding ring. That's not relevant. So we're not going to talk about Logan. We're just going to talk about kudzu. Mm, Got it. And did you feel that way also outside of investor meetings? I did because I think that I wasn't even aware that I was doing it. Because mm-hmm. someone would say, oh my gosh, you're so good at growth hacking. You guys have grown your users this much. And I'd say, well, look what Kudzu offers. Mm-hmm. And then it took one of my mentors to say, so many good ideas don't see this kind of traction. You are doing something. And of course, it's a great idea for the business, but take credit for it. Yeah. That's happened to me as well. It was like, I think when you have enough external validation, in the beginning, you're like, yeah, whatever. Like, mm-hmm. thanks so much, but let me just go back and do my work. But there's a certain point where you realize that it's for the benefit of your company and for everyone around for you to own your strengths. Definitely. So what were some of those strengths that you realized that you had? I realized early on that I was able to connect with people And it was in a genuine way because I felt it was almost on because I didn't feel like I knew enough about the fundraising space that I wanted to learn. And whoever I was meeting with, whether they made their family fortune in commodities, I'm in the education technology space. I'd want to learn about that because even though it's not going to help me get my users, maybe it'll help me with principles or how did you sustain during the recession or things like that. And that was really enabled me to form genuine bonds, not only with my cap table, but with the network now. So just developing those relationships, not being afraid to ask for advice and really valuing what people have to say um, really helped me. Would you say that you felt any pressure to change yourself during this process, especially, I think, with um, Silicon Valley and just this general trope of what it means to be an aggressive founder who, you know, builds things, fails fast, break things? Um, How did you fit into that model um, and did you feel that pressure to change? I definitely felt the pressure to change. And I think that there's a fine line too, because entrepreneurs are also afraid of stagnation. So you want to continuously progress, but you want to make sure that you're not conforming to some like BS notion of what you're supposed to be. So I'm always trying to continue to learn, um, continue to change, but productively, not only for my company, but for myself as well. But then when I catch myself like I used to think that I had to speak in a certain way in a pitch, especially not only being a female entrepreneur, but a non-technical founder of a Mm -hmm. tech company, because then it was just like two hits. Okay, well, where's your tech lead? And then basically like, where's your white dude? Yeah. (laughs) No offense to white dudes. Like some work hard as hell. But um, I I just like, I remember them scanning the room because my co-founder is African-American and then we're both sitting there like, yeah, we're non-technical. Like you want to invest in us, right? We're just the dream, right? now. Um, So I felt like we needed to change because I needed to learn some tech jargon and hopefully I was using it correctly. But now I'm just completely transparent that I'm open to learn, but I pride myself on hiring smarter people. Do you think that there is too much emphasis in the entrepreneurship space on being a technical founder? Like that is the end all be all because I was actually at um, an investor dinner yesterday um, and I had done one in New York and one in San Francisco and the one in 
New York, we were talking about how sometimes, in fact, it's it is more important at the end of the day when you're a CEO to build relationships, to be able to be collaborative with the team, to actually read people. And you can always hire that technical person. But who like there's just too much emphasis on this computer science grad from Stanford who, you know, is just when you do pattern matching, like that's been successful, but what about all these other skills um, that are about empathy? Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say I'd pass up on a computer science yeah. computer from Stanford, yeah. just to be completely honest. But I think that whenever we go into a cookie cutter method, especially in like this wild world of startups, you're already down like a crazy path. Cause it's like, if you must have this and you must have that. However, I do see from an investor standpoint, the risk mitigation of having the technical co-founder from my personal experience. I do looking back, wish that I brought on whether it was a technical co-founder or just one of the first hires. Cause we spent a good amount of money. It was a capital asset cause we built our product. Um, but if someone was in house, I think it would have been a lot easier, but mm-hmm. to answer your question, I don't think it's a do or die. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tell me about your journey um, building Kudzu from that idea stage and then getting it to a point where it had traction and suddenly you were like, wow, this is actually a thing. Um, were there any sorts of like emotional roller coasters that you went on? Um, I think that's one of the things as a founder that we don't really talk about, which is that it's not all glamorous and getting on these, you know, the Forbes 30 under 30 lists. That's just, you know, that was the moment where people were like, oh, you're actually <laughs> successful. Yeah. Like, this doesn't change anything when I go back to my office and just try and keep trudging through the day. Yeah. Oh, just to pick up where you left off with, I, it was, it's such an honor to be named to the Forbes 30 under yeah. 30 list, but it was kind of funny that like people are actually answering my cold emails now and like <laughs> answering my phone calls. And I'm like, I'm the same person, yeah. uh, but it did definitely open up doors. Um, with Kudzu, I just felt like there was, it, it was such a simple idea that you're like, this should exist. And when you research it and it didn't exist, you're like, I'm going to make this exist. Uh, it is now an app where students can get a currency called Kudzu Cash based on their academic achievements. They redeem them for real-time rewards. So gift cards, scholarships, once-in-a-lifetime experiences. When it started as non-technical founders, uh, I was going into sole proprietors, like local Wendy's, and saying, hey, for 25 of this funny currency, will you accept this for a Frosty? And if they said no, I'd say, oh, you don't want to support local students? Okay, I'll go next door. <laughs> uh, it, it worked pretty well for our pilot. And kids had to print out coupons and like the Wendy's would cross off an alphanumeric code. Like we had no tech, yeah. but uh, the demand was there. So I think that in entrepreneurship, you play Monday morning quarterback a lot. Like, oh, this could have been this and this mm-hmm. could have been that. I already did it with my technical co-founder. I'm like, oh, I wish I had a technical co-founder. Mm-hmm. Um, but something that we did well was launching to learn. And then also just running it so lean. It really wasn't by choice. It was because we were broke um, on is there market validation here? So when you say launching to learn, like you would launch it just so you can learn and pivot and iterate. Yes, because especially in the app space, I have entrepreneurs reaching out to me like, hey, I've read this book about launching or I'm going to launch and I'm going to launch and I'm going to launch. When is launch? Like you're taking so many notes. And then also, are you cutting a ribbon? Is there like a big party? Like I know that metrics are important, but too often you launch 
And then it's just in the app store and like your friends and family downloaded (laughs) it. And like, what is that big event? So how are you gearing up? How are you preparing for it? But then launching to learn with us, we launched at that small town that had the Wendy's like quote unquote launch. Only a couple hundred kids signed up, but it wasn't until we had the technology that we could scale it. Mm -hmm. But I think if we started just with the technology, we would have spent a lot of money that I don't know where we would be getting it from. Then also there was no market validation yet. What kids even use it? Yeah. So just printing out the alphanumeric codes really helped us in validating and then getting our first investment because you had that market validation to bet out the product. And that's such an important point because I think, um, especially when it comes to high achievers and people who are perfectionists, um, and especially for entrepreneurs, it's like, it's never enough. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like there, there is always more to do. Um, and if you get trapped in that, like, well, I still need to do this and I still need to do this, then you never launch. Yeah. And I even went through this journey, even putting out this podcast because I kept thinking, well, I'm not a good enough interviewer. Uh, I didn't extract the right answers. Um, I wasn't asking good enough questions. And at a certain point I thought, well, this is a podcast about enoughness. So I'm (laughs) falling into my own trap. So I'm just going to have conversations and just learn from the people that I interview. Yeah. And I'm sure like I am, I'm so glad that you did. And I think that we're our own worst enemies and too often too. Uh, I prided myself on being a perfectionist and then it wasn't until I read somewhere, I forget, but it was perfectionism leads to procrastination. Mm. And I was like, okay, well I'd rather not procrastinate and then like stop being a perfectionist. So that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when you talked about being our own worst enemies, um, what were some of the, I guess, internal dialogue that you've had with yourself as you've grown Kudzu, um, and gone on this journey? I always thought that I didn't have enough experience and I, it wasn't until I realized that I wasn't sure who I was comparing that to, Mm. like whether it was an article you read or a book you read or what engineer from Stanford that did this, um, that I was comparing myself and my track to, or if another startup was younger than us with more users, like there's a healthy amount of competition, but then also it's toxic because that is the internal dialogue. And how are you progressing? Are you inspired by a functionality they had, by a marketing campaign that they had, or are you just looking at the figures? Mm. Because that's not, that's not healthy. So with Kudzu, I was always thinking, one, are our students going to enjoy it? Because too often you get wrapped up in, I need money to make this work. But then it's, why do you need money? How are you spending the money? Well, uh, hopefully the kids will use it. No, we wanted to validate that first. And then also when you're wrapped up in pitching all the time, I was getting into this internal dialogue of, I need this upward hockey stick chart because that's sexy and that's what everyone wants to see. And you kind of get in this appeasement loop and you have this mentor whiplash that if I was leaving one pitch and they said, the most important thing is to monetize right now. Then I leave another pitch with a prominent fund that I'm way too early for, but they said, don't worry about the revenue. Just make sure you have the user engagement. And then I would get back to my office and my head is spinning because do I listen to so-and-so because he did this or Mm. her because she, she launched this app and did well. And then you get into this internal dialogue of what do I want to do? And is that correct? But correct to who? Mm. So that's why you need this true, true north to you as well as your business and clear milestones that you're willing to change based on like advice. But I'd be a string of car washes right now if I just listened to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> that's really important as well. This point that you bring up about 
having a level of specificity as you think about why you're feeling a certain way. Because it seems like what you're doing is comparing yourself to this this generic model, which is something that we do a lot. We don't even say, wait a minute, why am I comparing myself to this? What is the best thing or the worst thing that could happen in certain scenarios? Like, is this actually what I want? Um, and does this actually serve my higher purpose or even just my, my purpose on a day-to-day level? And I think we easily jump into this space of just fear and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And it's just this like gray zone, this gray cloud. And then we the moment you're able to cut through it is the moment you ask those specific questions. And it seems like you were able to do that. Yes, it was a process. The thing that helps me is always looking to extremes, but in a proactive way. So whether it was training for a marathon, sometimes you just don't want to run. Like, let's just be human, (laughs) you know, like, yes, I've run this many marathons. Like, no, training sucked. So I'd always, I had a sticker on my wall that said, someone busier than you is running right now. So it was like Mm -hmm. this guilt trip into like, who am I to think that I'm too busy? So with what you just brought up, I just read a book, oh, I forget what it's called, but it was uh, by a hostage negotiator. A and, hostage negotiator. Yeah. Okay. So he was saying that it's important to not lose your emotional intelligence throughout this. So he quoted something called the observing ego, that everyone's aware of your ego, but the observing ego is almost like a, a level on top of that of why did I get mad when I was reading that email mm-hmm. versus just frustratingly like responding to it? Why am I feeling like I'm inadequate right now at this meeting? And then you step back and say, well, I'm the only 20 something and I'm the only woman. Why should I feel mm-hmm. inadequate though? I'm here. How am I going to represent the only 20 something woman so that there are more of us in the future. Yeah. Uh, the observing ego is just that one, it's not easy, but it's that one extra step that's really helped me in all facets of life. And I think that's in, um, I refer to it as like metacognition. Yes. And to be able to, it's almost like you step outside of yourself and you're actually watching yourself and being like, what's going on? Why is she doing this? Um, and I, I think of it as like the space between, um, stimulus and response Mm -hmm. because, it's really easy for and most of us, especially in a city like New York, where there's just so much stimulus coming in. You just like react and there's someone on the subway who's, you know, just elbowed you and then you just get mad and yep. frustrated. And, um, you know, even you were talking on the way here, you're like coming from the subway and just like feeling really tense in the morning in New York City. Um, but it's learning how to stretch out that space to take a step back and say, okay, here's a stimulus, but is this how I really want to respond? And why am I feeling this way? Exactly. What have you done to um, widen that space um, in your learning process? To widen the space, I've and it's easier said than done. I'm still working on it, but it's to seek understanding. Mm. So there's a Abraham Lincoln quote that says, I don't like that man. I must learn more about him. Mm. So between my stimulus and response, even if it's just like the most ridiculous statement that was just thrown at me or some condescending thing, it's just like, don't just write him or her off as having mommy issues or something wrong with them. You know, (laughs) like, I don't want to work with them. Now, there are some people you just don't want to work with and you don't have to collaborate with everyone. But between my stimulus and and response, it's not only just with people, but it's with things that happen. Why did that person shove me on the subway? They must have somewhere to go. What if they're on the way to the hospital? Like trying to seek understanding through a humanity standpoint Mm. um, has made me a better person. But again, it's a process because sometimes I just want to shove them back. Yeah. (laughs) Is there a recent example or just something that 
comes to mind where you really had to like control your emotion in that response? Yes, I sent the uh, Q1 investor update. And I am so fortunate to have a great cap table of just investors who believe in my company, who understand the grassroots method of building and that it's taking longer because we're mission driven, but we are still unapologetically for profit. Um, But I'm also seeking constructive criticism. But there was one that was just like, it wasn't constructive. It was just Mm -hmm. criticism. So I... I always feel, I don't want to say like a failure because it's a little dramatic, but I always feel really down when an investor is disappointed mm. because I want Kutsu to be something that they're proud of and that when they're at a cocktail hour, they want to talk about us because look what we're doing and look what they're a part of and look what they're helping make happen. But um, this individual, I don't know if he had a tough day or if it was basically like, what the hell is this? And we did a comprehensive report and we put a lot of time in and not to say old Logan would have been combative back, but like, I would have been like, what use is this? Like, how can I help you? What's up? You know? And then I just asked if he needed clarity on anything. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, (laughs) That I said, I am so sorry. And it wasn't like accusative. I just said, Oh, was something unclear? This is like our, our strategy now. What do you recommend? And genuinely asking for help and asking for it, I actually engaged him and he's been incredibly helpful uh, with an initiative that we wanted to push through. But originally, it was really mean. But but I'm glad he reached out. Um, Have you ever been someone who has been sensitive or taken things personally? Yes. I think that whenever I get a chance to speak in front of especially like young women, I say do not take things personally. But also, that doesn't mean to get rid of your empathy. Yeah. Because I think a superpower that some people have who are, are, are the ones that are more empathetic and can care and be generous, but then also don't let your superpower take such a toll on you. Mm-hmm. Because when someone would say this idea would never work, I thought that they were telling me that I had no hope, like Logan as an individual. Yeah. And that's just ridiculous. It's toxic. Yeah. Um, how did you learn to... I guess, get over that point where it was like, okay, they're not actually talking about me. They're just giving their feedback, which is great. And I will decide whether or not I want to accept it. Um, Was there, yeah, what was your thought process getting through that? I think it goes back to what we were talking about, the strength of compartmentalizing. Mm. Because we are just, as entrepreneurs, are thrown so many pieces of advice. But it's like, you got to believe in it or no one else will. You have to immerse yourself in the product. You have to get involved. And then it's like, but don't take things personally. Like, yeah. And it's yeah. like, I haven't taken a paycheck. I lost most of my friends. I lost yeah. relationships. This company is like my baby. But yeah. then, oh no, but like, don't get emotional yeah. about it. And it's like, wait, what, so how do I cut that off there? So just even being able to speak to other co-founders like yourself or being able to speak to entrepreneurs who have been through it. I mean, if someone says everything's going great, they're lying. Yeah. So what's really helped me was to see that we're all in this, I don't want to say same boat, but similar journey. uh, And it's only going to make you stronger throughout it. So don't take it personally, but then also don't get too high with the highs. If the company's doing well, that's not you like freaking Napoleon leading the charge. Yeah. <laughs> like, so the don't get too high with the highs and low with the lows yeah. has really helped me. Yeah. And that's, that is really hard to try and modulate your, your emotions through this, especially like the high highs and to feel like you're on top of the world. And then you talk to someone else and they're like, Oh, that's great. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, no, but it's such a big deal. And then when the lows are lows and, the, and then you tell someone who's not an entrepreneur, they'll be like, oh, that's not such a big deal. And you're like, you just don't get it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like with the, the too high with the highs, if they're like, yeah, that's cool. You feel like such a jerk explaining why it's a big deal. Well, do you understand what this conference is? And I'm here. And, and it's like, okay, calm down. Then with the lows... I, my pet peeve are my friends used to be like, well, you're so lucky you can make your own schedule. Yeah. And it's like, wait, what? Like, I think I just lost this amount of money and then I didn't know how this and then rent is due here. And it's like, oh yeah, but I make my own schedule. Everything's fine. (laughs) And then there's not that realization that sometimes it's really hard to motivate yourself to get out of bed. Yes. Um, to have structure when you don't have someone telling you that this is your schedule. And for me, that was a lot of times I am a night owl naturally. So then I would get up later and I'd be up till two or 3 AM and then think like, this is not normal, but Hey, I can make my own schedule. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I, I just, I think that you always feel behind and I think it's important to say that because social media will show people being so productive and what they're getting done. But like, there's this welcomed pressure that comes with entrepreneurship that you always feel like you have something to do because it's not a nine to five. It's not like you clock out and the company keeps running. Like hopefully it can still generate revenue and build users and all that fun stuff. But like when you clock out, like no emails are getting answered or Mm -hmm. your team needs some delegation or whatever it might be. It's just with entrepreneurship, you need to be okay with always feeling like you could do more because as soon as you feel like everything's done, you either exited or like you're just not progressing as much as you should be. Yeah, that that reconciliation with it's okay, yeah. I think is actually something that's really hard to get to um, because as you said, it it is always like there's always more to do. Um, do you feel like there are any fears that are driving you um, in terms of even this like the feeling of being behind a lot of people feel like it's they're running out of time there's that fear of like not reaching their potential um what fears are driving you the fear that's driving me the most actually goes back to my kudzu compartment so it would be disappointing the students Mm. because every time I hear like I've been saving up all semester for this reward and it's not here like a student was thinking about kudzu throughout their schoolwork and it really scares me if we disappoint them Uh, personally yeah I think that you are just thrown into people's timelines or like their notion of what a timeline should be for you. So like, when did you start this company? And then when is this? Well, how old is Facebook? And like, and it's like, (laughs) wait, what? How did you jump from there to there? I was just yesterday. He's a good friend. So I don't want to throw him under the bus. But he was like, he said, well, like, well, when are you going to have kids? And I'm like, I think there are a few steps before that that I need to go through, but it's not an or. And that's a whole other conversation to have. He goes, how old are you again? I said 27. He goes, oh, you're okay. You have time. And I just said, oh, well, thank you so much. I'm so glad to hear that I have time. (laughs) And he kind of like stepped back like, oh, man, I forgot who I was talking to. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Do you feel like the timeline that you're on right now, um, do you feel any pressure like personally, especially when you get comments like that? Yeah, because I'm I'm so lucky that I have a very forward thinking, supportive family. But then, like, for example, my mom is like my biggest cheerleader with Kudzu. She sends me articles about data collection and then did you look at this and look what YouTube's doing and all this fun stuff. But then whenever I get home, she's like, 
so tell me about the boys. How are the date? How's dating going? You know, like I'm just like that's, and you can't get mad at that, you know. Yeah. But I could close this next round or like, mom, I just made the Forbes list, and she's yeah. like, yeah, but like, who's gonna be your plus one to the event? Like, <laughs> I totally empathize. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that is actually, I think, a unique. Uh, challenge for women Mm -hmm. because just fundamentally it's like you know we're in the midst of me too or in the midst of this incredible just gender parity revolution um but at the end of the day i was just having a conversation with um a male friend and he was like you know what i guess that's the main difference is that if you want to have a family then there is like time pressure for you and and that's going to be the major difference in terms of even when investors think like are you capable of doing this because if you're juggling these responsibilities which typically fall to the woman yeah. um, are you going to be able to nurture your company baby <laughs> yeah no well put i i just the way that your friend said yeah that is the difference it, it's so true because that's not even a factor you'd think it was weird if someone was in, like interviewing Mark Zuckerberg and just say like, well, what's your like nanny care like? Like I know he took paternity (laughs) leave, but you'd be like, well, that's a random question. But I remember when they asked Sheryl Sandberg about her like nanny, she's like, I don't think you'd ask a male uh, COO that. And they kind of just like stood up straight. Yeah. Um, On that point. So I recently wrote this article on what's harder um, fundraising or dating and especially for female entrepreneurs and ambitious women who have to navigate one on the fundraising side a 94% male dominated investor landscape and then on the dating side a still largely patriarchal society that says women can't have it all and I hate that we still have to have this conversation Yeah, but um, have you ever had challenges being like an ambitious woman um, who is crushing it in so many parts of her life and at least like even on the outside you know seeming like so much is going for you yeah I think just to I know that we covered this earlier but it's also like there's so many aspects to a person and what they're going through and it's still yeah. reading about like negotiators talking about observing ego like I'm not mm-hmm. posting that yeah. on the gram you know yeah. so I think it's really important for everyone's mental health to be like everyone's going through something and then yeah. hopefully you can motivate and collaborate and build together um, but yeah I'm tiptoeing around this question enough I don't <laughs> I don't know what's harder I think I think that dating is extremely fun while and fundraising maybe this is toxic to me is like a do or die. Like I need mm. to make it work for my company and I'm so excited and fundraising, I want to come correct. While like dating is more like what fun conversation can you have? And if someone's intimidated by something, you're weeding them out early. Kind of like the investor who is telling you that you can't be taken seriously without glasses. Do I want that email from that person all the time? Yeah. Dating's kind of the same thing. So there are yeah. more similarities to me. I'd rather fundraise than date, <laughs> to be <Yeah>. honest. <laughs> What are some other boundaries that you have? So you're saying like if someone, for example, makes you uncomfortable or like makes a comment like that, um, it's it's a definite no. Yeah, I'm sorry. From what I said, thank you for clarifying that. Like, that's how I would take it as well. But not necessarily. I seek understanding and to Mm. be completely transparent. Some of my best investors were from like awkward first interactions. Yeah. To like when I was I remember I was going I was in an elevator and this guy, like my dad's age, gets into, and he was like, "Oh, you look nice. You going for a job interview?" 
and I was like, no, I'm actually like headed to this pitch meeting. And he's like, oh, me too. And then we walk into the same room and he was like, I'm waiting for the CEO, Logan. And I'm like, I have an androgynous name. Oh, I'm the CEO. Yeah. I'm Logan. Yeah. And he was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I have a daughter. I just, you, you were just so nice and you're young. So I didn't know that. And he was like, just yeah, totally yeah. stepping on himself. But uh, he wound up investing, I don't know, out of okay. guilt or, or <laughs> liking the company. But yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, do you have any regrets or just decisions that you wish you had made differently in building Kudzu? Regret is a strong word because I think I'm a half glasses half full yeah. kind of person like oh well then I learned yeah but then one of my mentors who's like ridiculously successful and rich he's like you didn't learn you lost money <laughs> <laughs> so I try to wait with that but I do wish that I brought on a head of product or a technical co-founder early on if mm-hmm. you're in tech I mean if I was starting any other company if I was in fashion merchandising I'd bring on a, desi- a designer mm-hmm. I'm not really sure why we waited so long um, yeah. for it but we learned from it yeah that's amazing and I think that's just a really important mindset for anybody to have is um, I think that's the difference with great entrepreneurs. It's people who take everything as a learning experience, even if it is loss of money, <laughs> yes. um, because then you won't do it again. Definitely. What sorts of mantras do you have on a day to day that keep you going? Ooh. So I absolutely love mantras, but it, they fluctuate with what I'm focused on. Like during the marathon, it was someone busier than you was running. Yeah. Um, when I want to, and right now we're really focused on driving revenue for Kudzu because we did have a strong mission, in which we follow. Um, but right now we're like, all right, we got to sustain. So I have the sales cure-all mantra that I keep going through. Um, and with me also, it was to not take things personally. So mm. just like, don't take whatever is thrown at you in this meeting personally. And it's okay to not know something. Yeah. I used to just like have to say the answer right away, or it's okay to say, great question. Can I get back to you on that? My yeah. knee jerk reaction is this, but let me check that. Yeah. That is something that I've had to teach myself too, is that I don't have to answer a question. Yes. Um, which is, it's just crazy because I've, I've heard some interviews, um, with, um, I guess for lack of better word, uh, very arrogant guys, (laughs) (laughs) um, when questions are asked, they just completely answer a different question Yeah, as if that question was never asked guys or Kellyanne Conway. (laughs) (laughs) Like, wow, I didn't know that I could just completely ignore your question and just decide to answer. So it's like, tell us about, for example, um, I don't know, um, losses in the company. Let's say if they're saying if you're losing money, it's like, so the team is growing. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's like totally not relevant to what they're saying. And the same aspect I learned to not have to explain Mm. still be respectful but like even if you can't go to something yeah I'm so sorry because I have this and I have that but I really like what you're doing here and I did it and it's like sometimes a guy would just be like nah yeah <laughs> the one word email nope. yeah <laughs> yeah um awesome well on that note I want to thank you so much for your insights your life philosophies today I think it's super helpful for a lot of the listeners to just hear about your journey as well as how you conduct yourself um, on a day-to-day 
Awesome. Well, thank you for having me. This was great. The last thing that I do for every episode is something called the one thing, okay. because I think all it takes is just one person, one voice, one experience to completely change someone's life. So I'm just going to ask you some of your one things and just answer for the, the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. What is one book that you unhesitatingly recommend to anyone? Oof. Um, Right now, it's The Four by Scott Galloway. The Forb? The Four. Okay. Um, talks about Apple, Amazon, Google, and just talking about the space right now and how you could maneuver within. What's the one lesson that you've learned from it? Well, he's a professor at NYU. So while you get a little bit in the trenches of each company and the tech space, at the end, he talks about how to be a um, valuable, basically, in this competitive job market, whether you want to work for someone or start your own. And he does a really concise, great job way of explaining it. I wish cool. I read it in college. <laughs> um, what is one thing that you would bring with you to a deserted island? Who? My dog, Givenchy. <laughs> what kind of dog is it? He's a Chihuini. Okay. A Chihuahua dachshund. Personality? What is it? it depends on the day. Okay. But yeah, he, he's all over the place. But I think we would Got just it. have fun. What is one song you listen to to pump you up? Uh, right now, I'm loving Lemonade. Oh, I love yeah. that song. Yes. To rock out. Uh-huh. Um, what is or who is one person that has fundamentally changed your perspective on life? Mm, my father. My father. He was instilling it in me early on with self-esteem and giving me enough power to make my own decisions. And now he's my CFO at Kudzu. So we've really grown. Oh, that's grown. amazing. Yeah. So it's a father-daughter operation. Definitely. <laughs> um, and what is one challenge that you would issue to the listeners, um, some action that they can take today to change their life or to change their perspective? Uh, a challenge would be to seek to understand. And that's through whatever you want to call it, whether it's observing ego or some metacognitive view. But before just responding right away, um, recognize yourself and recognize the circumstance and see the best productive way to handle it. Awesome. Well, thank you for your thoughtfulness and understanding today, Logan. Um, I think I can speak for everyone that this has been a really incredible conversation. Awesome. Thanks, Lisa. This is great. There you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. I created the Enoughness podcast to reveal the real stories behind the leaders we admire to address this universal question that we all have at some point or another. Am I good enough? So just remember that you're not on this journey alone and that you do have the power of enoughness. If you want the full show notes and transcript from today's episode, go to www.lisawang.co slash podcast. Again, that's lisawang.co slash podcast. And you'll be able to follow along. I'd love if you could leave a review or tag anything that you share on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag enoughness. And you can find me at LisaWorks, L-I-S-A-W-O-R-X on Twitter or Instagram. Catch you in the next episode.